a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Talking turkey with Lorraine Banks. If you've ever been to Noosa, you must have been to Bistro Seas. It's a place that's synonymous with Noosa life. It's beach life and it's all about sunshine. You can almost touch the sand having your coffee out the front and watch all those beautiful people walk by. It's a place you go for breakfast, lunch and dinner, and for as long as I've known, it's been absolutely packed. And Lorraine is the magician at the front door, keeping it on track and keeping check of absolutely everything. But who's the chef? Who's the celebrity? Why isn't Lorraine on the cover of every food magazine in the country? Has she shunned the publicity or the limelight? She's risked it all for sure in this restaurant business that runs through her veins. She tells us some hard truths, but also some very funny stories to boot. Now, Lorraine was wearing some fabulous earrings during this interview, which became a little bit clattery, and you might be able to hear them in the background. But you know what? The chat was fabulous and worth keeping. So here we go, Lorraine Banks. Good morning, Lorraine. How are you? Good morning. Wow. I'm fine. Now, I hear that, uh, or the story goes, that you're an accidental restaurateur. How the hell does that happen? Like things happen in life, I suppose. You fall into certain trades. And I fell into it. How do you fall into it? Especially owning a restaurant, you know, to set it up, you know, if people have never been to Bistro Seas, which I can't believe. If they've been to Noosa, they've been to Bistro Seas. It is a humming, busy restaurant and always has been so as long as I know it. So when we say you're an accidental restaurateur, you're ending up at the top of the tree with one of the busiest and most successful restaurants in the country. Since 15, I've worked in restaurants all my life. We came to Noosa, actually, to retire and within a couple of weeks I hated being bored and I saw a restaurant on the beach that was only open from 6pm 6 6 to 9pm and I approached the owner and said I'll take on days and, um, and it just took off. And when was that? Much what better. year was that? Because I'm trying to piece it together with my arrival. About 89. All right. Because the yeah. reason I say that is because I remember I got to Australia, I think in 91, and probably that year or the year after, I remember walking, going to Noosa for the first time and going to this little, what was really a kind of shack on the beach called Eduardo's. It was a hole in the wall. Yeah. And the food was bloody amazing. So that was you. <laughs> that was you back in well, the day. Well, me and... With help, I had chefs and, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I was the breakfast lunch chef and then, <laughs> um, which I'm not a chef, by the way, I'm just a cook. Yeah. You know, the word spread and I started to get some really good chefs come on board and the kitchen was about the size of a, a toilet, Yeah. you know, and it was fun. How did you, because that concept for me, because to put it mm. in perspective, I'd come out of London, so I was working in mm. all these fancy Michelin star restaurants. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. I came to Australia and I'd fallen in love with it. I'm traveling around and I come across Eduardo's on the beach. And like I say, it felt like a shack. It was doing in Asian inspired, you know, there were curries, you know, green curries and red curries. And this we is my memory. For those curries, a long time yeah. ago. But I'm sitting yeah. there and just going, this is bloody delicious. And I'm looking yeah. at probably, and the Noosa still is in my mind, one of the most 
beautiful places on the planet. Like you stare yeah. up, you know, you stare up the coast, you know, onto the North Shore and up, and it is mm. just insane. How did you how did you grab onto that concept? What who said let's do Asian food, fusion food, let's get spicy? Yeah. It was it was a bit of everything, you know, depending on who was helping out in the kitchen. I had a good friend called Dahini. She used to live in um, Minamar, which is that Minamar now where, you know, where the riots are. She, yeah. So she was the Asian influence. And then I had some fabulous boys come up from ba- uh, Bar- Barat, is it? Ba- ba- Ballarat. Yes, Ballarat. down in. Country um, Victoria. Not yes, known for its uh, Thai food, I'm saying. No. Putting it and <laughs> everybody just mucked in. We used to change the menu quite often and. It was just fun. We never, we didn't take it seriously. I used to close on Sunday afternoons <laughs> and just put a long table out there for the staff and we used to have lunch and it wasn't a serious business at that stage. And then it did get serious because we won best restaurant of the year in Maud magazine or something and it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Tell us. Because you'd gone from um, I, what, lifestyle business thinking, love this, there's a lot of joy in it, having some fun, and then was that weight of expectation? Exactly. Like people used to come in expecting things, you know, with expectations, and we were just, as I said, it was just we were all just there for a bit of fun. People used to come in and, you know, if something wasn't quite right, oh, you know, we used to get hammered. And I, after that, I used to say, that's it, I, you know, any awards, I'm staying clear. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> what kind of pressures does it put you on? I mean, uh, most people listening to this podcast are people that consume food and love food rather than the, the operators. Oh, it's enormous pressure, enormous pressure, because people have expectations. When you win anything like an award or anything, people expect more than what we can probably produce. Yeah. At the time, what do you remember hearing from customers or do you remember any particular examples where you went, oh, I've had, this is it, what's going on? Oh, well, there was a few. We started to get sort of like really famous people coming in and they all wanted to sit on that table, which we call B3, which, you know, everybody could watch the showers and all the young girls in their bikinis had come up and the shower was literally in front of the restaurant and that was the favourite table, B3. <laughs> what about the old that's men the old, and their budgie smugglers? That's be those I, too, oh, right? no, that was, that was <laughs> disgusting. And um, anyway, so we had Michael Caine, mm. the actor and restaurateur, and uh, he was sitting on B3, and um, he ordered, I think, fish cakes and garfish. Anyway, we were all in a bit of a, oh, Michael Caine, Michael Caine, you know. <laughs> and, um, and Janie Mills, who was my chef at the time, you know, with garfish, it doesn't have many scales, but you're supposed to just push your thumb up and just, you know, clean it a bit. Yeah. Anyway, she forgot to do that, of course, and Michael Caine ordered the special of the day, which was garfish, and the next minute, you know, the waitress came in and she said, oh, B3 wants to speak to you. And I I had the bandana on and, you know, the chef gear and everything, so I went out. Hi, Mr Caine, how are you? He went, uh, are you the owner? And I said, yeah, and he had scales, like like he had things in his 
feet and he went, this is bloody rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you transition from that, you know, and I've got this vision in my head, you know, you said bandana, you're running a big shack, all of a sudden famous people are coming in, you've got awards and you've lost a little bit of joy. Is that what happened? Yeah, it became a bit like full-on business. Like we were getting booked out months in advance and, you know, like if it rained, we were stuffed because you've been there yourself. You know what it was like. I mean, I had um, uh, at that stage a, a guy called Jean-Luc Chaudot and he he ran the floor and uh, he became a business partner in the end and Jean-Luc was French and... Um, he used to cram people in like they were next to bike racks and down by the toilets and, you know, it, it just became crazy. And people still wanted to come and they'd be sitting next to a toilet. Yeah, you I've know? been on that table, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what, if, if the food's rained, good, if the food's good, oh, who cares? It's not ideal, obviously, but. No, I know, but it was, yeah, it just became really full on, really full on. So what happened next? What was the transition into, you know, how much longer did you run? Well, what happened was Eduardo's, a lot of people don't know this, but um, Eduardo's was on a demolition clause because it was always in the contract it was going to be demolished. So I was on cheap rent for 10 years because it just never got demolished. And then in the end we were there for 10 years and, we got notice that it was being demolished. and But that oh. is a restaurateur's dream, isn't it? Yeah, Cheap it rent. is. You know, rather Cheap than having rent. a business partner that's your landlord, essentially. Yes, it was great. Yeah. So did you stretch yeah. yourselves? Did you and your partner at the time, it was Ian, isn't it? Did, he, did you stretch yeah, yourselves? Yeah, Ian Banks, yeah. Well, the rent was forced to cover, you know, the mortgage. They defaulted on their rent. So I had to take it over. And so there was the, that... Eduardo's and Bistro C, which was then called, we changed it to Delozo's, which um, a friend of mine, Dai, she was the Asian influence in Eduardo's. We called it Dai Lozo's because yeah. my name's Loz. I was just about, it sounds like an Italian restaurant, but now when you put it that way, it's yeah, not at all. No. <laughs> yeah, also took off. It was, you know? was it, uh, do you think it was something as much to do with the kind of burgeoning interest in Noosa? I mean, because Noosa went from um, sleepy, sleepy kind of holiday caravan type place to go to yeah. what it is today very quickly, didn't it? It did, but I've got to say in those days it was a different clientele. Everybody used to mix in together, like the Smorgans and Harry and Miller and Deborah, you know, like it was all the celebrity people and then they'd be hanging out with Hey Bill who runs a water truck on the beach, you know, like everybody used to just muck in together, you know, whereas now it it has changed. And in those days, like it would be busy and then it would be quiet and it would be busy and then it would be quiet, whereas now it's just busy all the time. Full on. How's your your attitude changed as as a restaurateur now, 30 years later and hardened? The bandana's obviously gone. And I and just to give people a <laughs> no no oh, it hasn't. Bandana, you still got it. I, just today I'm a bit like you know no the bandana I still get in there with the bandana sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And to give people an idea, like when I've been, I see you on the front door. It is like a military operation. 
Military. Military. You know, you've got a queue of people trying to get in. You're turning first service over into second service, into third service. For a restaurateur, it's a sight to behold. So how's your attitude changed and your approach changed over the years? My philosophy is I want to be able to serve a party with grandma, kids, trendies, mum and dad, everybody. So a family of, you know, 15 can come in and we can cater to every one of those people without one of them feeling, oh, what's this word, you know? (laughs) You know, you go to these restaurants sometimes and you read it, it's like, what the hell does that mean? You know, I don't even know that word. (laughs) (laughs) So so how do you, I mean, you would have seen chefs come through your doors over those years that, and, and restaurant managers and staff that you're constantly having to shift their position. So how do you do that? I've got to be honest, up until COVID in Bistro C, I'd had one uh, manager uh, and one head chef for like 25, 28 years. Wow. And a lot of my staff are 16, 17, 15. You know, I can't tell you how many people that I go in the kitchen and they go, hi, Lars, I'm coming up to my 10th year. (laughs) You know, I'm going, oh, great. (laughs) But all my staff seem to stick around. Well, you must be a good boss then. I like to hear that. People say I am tough but fair. Tough but fair is good. Tough and fair. Give me an example of tough and give me an example of fair. Oh, okay. So... At the moment, trying to get staff, I mean, we're coming into Easter and, you know, you always employ a few more people at Easter and trying to get staff is impossible at the moment. I mean, we advertised and uh, we had 25 applicants. Out of those 25, 23 of them, get this, this makes my blood boil, 23 of them said, oh, we don't want the job. We're just applying because we have to apply for four jobs a month. No. Now, that's disgusting. That's mm. true. That is disgusting. How do, you, how do you navigate through that, for goodness sake? Oh, like I'm a bit stressed with the lack of staff and like what, the things that you have to do is, you know, like at the moment I've rented a three-bedroom apartment. I'm advertising for chefs, but they get accommodation. Yeah because accommodation in Noose is really bad for, you know, staff. You have to just, you know, become Bend and pull out the stops. I, I hear that a lot. I just went up to Bright in yeah. Northern Victoria and they said it is getting jammed, it's packed, and every bit of accommodation is booked out, yeah. which means, and I never thought about it, just like you, that if any staff come up from the big smoke, they've got yeah. nowhere to live because they can't afford to. Yeah, so nowhere to live. Yeah, no one. I've live. even got a staff member in my bloody granny flat. Imagine having staff in your granny flat. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean, strategy from a restaurant point of view? Does that mean you've just got to cap bookings? You've got to operate within, you know, a, com- a comfort zone without – because otherwise you're offering something maybe you can't fulfil. You know, you're putting bums on seats that you can't Exactly, exactly. Well, um You know, you just have to say to the staff, look, guys, I'm in a tough position at the moment. Can you work six days or, you know, can you work extra? The majority of them, you know, understand and say, yeah, 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 because I'll give them time off when it's a bit quieter. Yeah, although it doesn't get much quieter, does it? No, it doesn't. It's like, oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) So what other challenges? You've got staff. Prices of food's going up, isn't it? I mean, that's always a bit of a 
No, no, but you can't help that. Uh, no, staff, staff definitely is the major concern in restaurants. Yeah. There's a little restaurant on the, um, on the Gympie Terrace and um, I spoke to the owner the other day and I said, how are you going, Mary? And she said, oh, my God. She said, there's just myself and Michelle running the place. So two people in a restaurant. She was running the floor of the bar and Michelle was running the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's certainly a time of reckoning, isn't it? And that's how I felt when I was up in regional Victoria is they said, you know, they'd come out and say, look, I'm really sorry, 20 minutes on a coffee. We can't give you breakfast because we just can't turn from breakfast to lunch, for example. Yeah, and people, yeah I know. People not understanding and then having to deal with those, those kind of complaints where people have, you know, this is ridiculous but not really thinking about what's behind it. Yeah, so maybe a period right. of reckoning where people just run out of gas, have to close. Yes. What's happened in Noosa, a lot of people when COVID hit, they closed, but they've only opened for breakfast and lunch and they closed for dinner. Or another restaurant will close Mondays and Tuesdays, you know. So it's not back full swing yeah. with a lot of people yeah, because they can't get the staff. Yeah. And that's the reason. Another great challenge. And it's funny, isn't it, because every year that goes past, and, I mean, COVID's just been... You know, when we started doing the podcast, we didn't want to really talk about COVID because we thought, oh, we'll go away. And then it, it, people will listen to this in two mm. years' time and go, well, it's not relevant. But, of course, it's just kept going and the problems are just compounding themselves and getting harder and harder for hospitality. Yeah. What do you reckon the yeah, way forward is? is? What do you think it's uh, going to look like in, in, a year, in 12 months' time, say? Okay, this is what I reckon will happen. I think we'll be short of staff until all the backpackers stop coming back in yep. from international but the minute those international flights are open, people will be so sick of holidaying in, in Australia. They'll be on that flight to Bali and Europe and all that. So, you know, takings could drop Yep. Uh, in a couple of years, I reckon. So that's my prediction. Yeah. I, I, I think it um, could take a bit of a dip. But then again, if the international airlines are flying, we could get the international travellers. Yeah, correct. And, and Noosa was yeah. certainly becoming, I noticed last time I was up before our great lockdown in Victoria that, um, you know, if you look at how many international backpackers are coming in, lots from France, lots from Germany. I mean, every other person you're seeing in the street, there's an accent, you know, so it's certainly a hub where people are travelling to because of the lifestyle and the, the availability of work. Yeah. Well, at the moment what happens, they tend to move in packs I've got Brazilians at the moment, and uh, once you employ one Brazilian, you have a, a, a house full of Brazilians, I'm telling you. In your granny flat in your garage, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, oh, all over, like, you know, but what can you do? Yeah. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do.
So what are your what are your golden rules? Yeah. You know, if we're talking about business and we're getting stuck in and we're talking about you know some of your problems, what do you, what do you stick to? What are your what are Loz's uh, golden rules for success in your business? Consistency, fair prices, and friendly staff. It's it's not rocket science, really, is it? Yeah, but attention to detail, surely. I mean, you must walk into that restaurant. Oh, attention, Even though yeah, you attention, know it yeah. like the back of your hand, you must be picking yeah. up on 30 things a day, surely. Yeah, I do. And we renovate every two years to keep up with the trends and things like that. And, um, yeah, it is attention to detail. And um, I can go in there and change the lights because they have the lights up too bright or they have too many lights on. You know, it's been like that every day for 20 years or something, you know. <laughs> I mean... I don't know. I can't understand it, you know. And <laughs> because I have that's signs your job. You made it lights. your job. Yeah. <laughs> I have signs above the lights and markers, you know, like little arrows and things like that. But still I go in there and, baby, those lights are wrong. Yeah, that's because it's so you, it you made it your job and that's what they do. But going back to, you know, you asked me the question about how are you with the staff and mm. tough love and all that kind of stuff. Okay, because we're short-staffed at the moment. We have a dishy who, you know, should have turned up. Mm. And um, my chef said, Lars, Lars, we've got no dishy. You know, and I said, well, who should be on? And he said, Ben. So, you know, I phoned around. Nobody knew where Ben lived except they described this house into Wanton. Anyway, so the house was an old fibro house with yellow flowers at the letterbox. So off I jumped in my car, up and down the streets in bloody Tawanton, oh, excuse the French, up and down the streets in, in Tawanton looking for a fibro house with yellow flowers at the letterbox. Anyway, I found it. So I'm banging on the door, Benny, 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 no answer. So then I went round the back and climbed up on a, on a garbage bin and looked through the window and he was there and screamed, Benny, you know. <laughs> And he jumped and I went, get up, you're supposed to be at work. <laughs> and he got up, oh, sorry, lost, sorry, lost, sorry, lost. I said, I'm in the car. I'll wait five minutes. So that's the kind of tough love. I'll tell you what, Benny will never forget that moment for as long He's as he lives. He's in there every day. He's <laughs> in there every day. Hi, Lars. What happens is they go out and, and, and you know, get maggot the night before and then they phone up in the morning and they go I'm sick I say okay if you're sick I said do you want your job or not oh I can't Lars I can't I say get in here now so they come in and what happens I know they're hung over and they're green around the gills but I make them work for a couple of hours <laughs> just to you know like make sure that it's not acceptable to call in just because you're hungover. Yeah. You've set the standard and they've got set to the stick standard. to it. I mean, if, I've, I've done it myself. I've been in there where I've been a bit green around the gills. All we've got to do is teach them how to turn those lights down. Yeah. And you're laughing, <laughs> aren't you? Plus you know, the cushions. Yeah. It's, you know what's funny? I, I, in my own experience as, you know, as a restaurateur is that the little things, certainly when you open, like the phone doesn't get picked up or the front door stays open. Oh. And, you know, you, you tend to do, you know, you, yeah. why can you not? Oh. Just shut the front door because the air conditioning's on and all the cold air's going out. Exactly. The flies are coming in. All these little things, but that's oh. that's your job, isn't it? Like your job yeah. is kind of recenter. I think Danny yeah. Meyer said your job is to move the salt and pepper back into the yeah. center of the table, and everybody else's exactly. job is to move it around everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I've got to say, the staff at Bistro C, I mean, it, it, you've been in there. It's it's, a, it's hard, you know, like you're on your feet. I mean, your feet don't even touch the ground some days, you know. And But the good thing is, like, you do your eight-hour shift and it's like, whoa, eight, eight hours already? Yeah, you know? and time flies. You know what sticks with me, flies. and it's that kind of high-volume restaurant, and maybe people don't think about it, but what I always admire is that you switch from – you know, breakfast services, you know, and breakfast is different yeah, early to yeah. say it is, at, you know, 11.30 when you get that compression of, you know, mm. people coming in for brekkie, turn around for lunch. And then even at dinner from having, you know, and I know this, having gone to Bistro C so many times, you cater for everyone. So you've got kids, you know, running around emptying the salt and pepper shakers and stabbing forks oh. into your tables at 6 oh. o'clock. And yeah. you've got to deal with that and transition into a slightly different pace Maybe by well now we've changed the times. We've changed the times now. So the families we encourage to come in at five, out by six thirty because people with kids don't want to hang around. Yeah, and then six thirty until eight thirty, and then eight thirty on. So you get the it's it's nicer dining from six thirty. So <laughs> anybody with families. Coming at five yeah. o'clock. But then we know that, you know, so, you know, having had a child ourselves, Mandy and I, we know that we'd have, we'd literally go to a restaurant and say, we've got an hour before the yeah. shit hits the fan. Yes, Which means exactly. get us fed, put it all down on the table, we don't care, and then we're out of here. Yeah, and, and then, then you're, you're out. It. Yeah, and then yeah. you're out. And I actually, now I've got older and, you know, I look at other people's kids and they think they're cute, but I don't anymore. I look at their yeah. kids and go, get them out of the restaurant. Is when they start screaming and crying, they oh. want to go home. Oh, yeah, I know. Okay, so my philosophy is if you've got a young family, it doesn't mean you can't go out. So that we we created a bit of a niche there, you know, like for families, you know, and and they appreciate it. Yeah, because you can do it. You're not setting, you're not only setting boundaries. I'm just going to tell you this. I don't know if you remember this, but a friend of mine who worked for you said that um, he never, he never forgot that it was the time of the Noosa try and the place was absolutely heaving. <laughs> and the one thing he remembers in your kind of unique style is mm. that you walked up to a triathlete who was sitting down mm. at a chair and said, are you mm. eating? And he said no. And you basically told him to get up, pulled the chair away <laughs> and told him that you were going to take it somewhere else, that if he wasn't eating. And you did it. And he just stood well, there and went, oh, my God. I probably needed the chair. You needed the chair and he, and he wasn't eating. So you went, yeah, it's going. Yeah. It's going somewhere else, you said. Yeah, yeah. Well, sit on your mate's lap or something. I probably needed that chair, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Amazing. Can we rewind the clock a little bit and talk about what brought you to Noosa? I mean, how far do you want to go back? I heard little stories of um, you silver servicing back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I used to, uh, I trained as silver service and um, with the the spoon and fork and serving at the table well not many people do that these days you know but that's how I trained you could only serve from a certain side and put your arm behind your back when you pour the wine and you know keep the coffee pot on the tray did you ever do that (laughs) so you used to have a tray with coffee this is how I was taught I'm a chef but I had to do front of house for a bit and you have a coffee pot you have milk and sugar and you lean in and you got to keep the side of the coffee pot on the tray while you call the, pour the coffee. Oh, this is before no. espresso became popular. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, you turn the tray and pour the milk and turn the tray and add the sugar. What a palaver. Oh, my God. What a load of rubbish The first that time is. I ever did it, the first time I ever did it, oh, you know, you're that nervous, you know, your hands are like shaking and the bloody spoon and forks clattering, you know. And um, I think it was trout. 
rainbow trout or something like that. Well, what did it do? Fell right off the dumb plate into the lap. You know, I mean, it's just Murphy's Law that had to happen, isn't it? <laughs> and in the old days, you know, when um, the chefs, I mean, if you stuffed up your order, they'd get you and they'd snake burn your wrist. What's you know, a snake like, burn? Oh, you mean when you, know, you twist your they, wrist? Yeah, twist your wrist. That's you know, like, workplace bullying laws. I've never heard it, well, it, anything in like those it. Day, <laughs> in those days, baby, if there was. And was this in know, Australia or were we talking overseas? Yeah, Australia in Sydney. Oh, there you go. And I won't name the chefs and I won't name the restaurant. But you remember. But, it, but I remember, yeah. yeah. I worked very hard in my young career and I just promised myself all the way through it that I would never be like that. Yeah, well, be a you different can't kind be of these days. Yeah, you can't be these days. The only thing I regret was that when I got, as I got older, I remember being, you know, when I was my first exec chef's job and I remember going to promote a young chef and he said, I don't want the promotion. And I said, why not? And I'd realised at that moment I'd taken the, you know, I used to look at my chef when I was in London and go, he just walks around and does nothing and gets paid loads of money. And then I became yeah. a chef chef and I got paid a reasonable amount of money, but I was always running around and working loads of hours. And he said, why would I want to be like you? And I realised at that point that I'd taken away the motivation for getting to the top because mm. he said, you work harder than I do. And I went, damn it, I am. Yeah, yeah. You know? People, are, they, they don't understand that. They open up a business. They, what happens is... Um, Customers come up from like Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere and, and it's packed, packed, packed and they think, oh, I could do this. This is, you know, money in the till. But they don't understand there's so much goes into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, when people say lifestyle, I go, yeah, it's your life. Well, That's I came up to retire is. and I work seven days a week. <laughs> I mean, tell what's that about? You know, shoot me in the head. Yeah. So did you travel much when you were younger? I mean, we're yeah, talking yeah, uh, an eighteen-year-old, yeah. you know. Yeah, from that, fifteen. From fifteen, yeah. and yeah, from fifteen, I left home, and then I went down to um, London, which was a bit like yeah. I was a bit of a street kid, I think, after for a few weeks there, and realised that that wasn't working, and went down to Newquay, yep. down south, and in those days, it was all flower power and hippies and things like that. So I worked down there for years on and off because it was seasonal and um, I got in with the crowd and and we used to work the season seven days a week and then go and spend the winter in foreign countries like Morocco or Spain or wherever we felt like it. Where was your favourite place back then? Where's the thing you remember? Uh, Could be the romance you had or the... No, no, there's no, no romance. Because you didn't though. mention free love when you were talking about. Yeah, I know. So I was I know. waiting for you to give me a bit of, you know. Yeah, no, there, no, I wasn't like that. I was a good girl. <laughs> um, no, Morocco. Um, I loved Morocco. Morocco was like going back in Jesus' time in those days. I mean, like. And when are we talking? What what kind of. Oh, I don't know. Uh, 70s, 70s, I suppose. Yep. Yeah. And what yeah. did it look like back then? What do you remember? Oh, it was just, I mean, everybody used to like wear biblical clothes, sort of thing, you know, and there was hardly any Westerners. I mean, the people with money were um, French Moroccans. And. Um, used to make a bit of a living. I used to buy Levi's and um, sell them to the French Moroccans because they were the only people with money. 
and they wanted the Western things. So Morocco, I love Morocco. I mean, I haven't been back since then and I doubt whether it would be the same, but it was great. I mean, I lived in a van and... Can we just like, draw a... I just need to drag you back, see if you can remember. Yeah, but I've, just, I've yeah. just got this image of this young yeah. woman and I presume you're yeah. Scottish. I'm just, you know, I hate to say it. No, I'm not Scottish. I'm you? Lancashire. Oh, you're Lancashire. Lancashire. See, and that's why I say I hate to say it because I always get it wrong because I've obviously mm. not... I left England in 91 and I was pretty yeah, sure that Lancashire. you must have been from on the borders somewhere. Lancashire, it's yeah. totally different. I got it completely wrong. Yeah. So, okay, I'm yeah. picturing this young uh, northern lass selling Levi's, yeah. right, to Mor- yeah. French Moroccans. Mm-hmm. Can I drag you into yeah. that moment? Like, what, what the hell was going yeah. through your mind? Taking cash? Well, I've always been a little bit up. of a wheeler dealer, you know? <laughs> like, I've always been a bit of a wheeler dealer. And, uh, what were you selling your my... Levi's for? Can you remember? What were they get? What were they getting sold for? Oh, a few God, coins God, here and there. No, no, not coins. No, not coins. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was enough to kind of like eat. We never worked, of course, over there. And but I remember, I'll tell you this time. I was in Marrakesh, and um, and uh, we went into the soup one night. I mean, in, in those days, there were like dancing bears in the soup, right. and there was like snake charmers and uh it was it was like biblical times and anyway i wasn't my true self and um, i ended up getting separated from my mates i had long blonde hair in those days and the next minute totally lost and in those seats i mean it's just you never know where you are and um the next minute, these kids on wooden planks, this is a true story, with wooden planks, they had wheels on these wooden planks and they're skating towards me and the next minute they hit the back of my leg, my knee, and I went down and they cut all my hair, all my long blonde hair off. My goodness. Well, you would have stood out like and, a sore thumb. Wouldn't you? Oh, I'm like rolling around on the ground. I'm screaming, you know, like, and they'd taken my hair. So like it was in tufts, you know, like this. Anyway, Moroccans hate dogs. So the next minute uh, I'm rolling around on the ground, like thinking, am I in a movie? I mean, is this a nightmare or what? And then these two big Germans with an Alsatian came like, you know, marching down the road and uh, picked me up and sort of like carted me off. But I had to shave my bloody head. <laughs> you know, I had bits of tops all over the what place. What did they do with the hair, do you reckon? Sold it for wigs. Sold it for wigs. Now there's a business you didn't think yes. of. Yes. You see? You could have just shaved your yeah, head every couple yeah. of months and you would have made a bit of money. Yeah, so I've been like a bit weird about my hair ever since. I can't go to hairdressers and... You know, I, I have nightmares and all that kind of stuff. You and know? maybe that's why you haven't been back to so, Morocco. You just- <laughs> yeah, but the girls, my daughters keep saying, take us back, Mum, we want to take you, we want to go, we want to go. I say it won't be the same, won't be the think- same. You'll be able to buy everything that you want there. I mean, when I was there, all you could buy was bloody a box of cornflakes. I think you, you should know? go because the comparison after that amount of time I think would be fascinating. Get your thoughts on it. You know, I'll you, wait until COVID goes. Do you remember any of the food or do you remember a moment in your travels when you were younger that you thought, I'm going to stick with this as a career or it was something that happened just 
by chance as you got older? Yeah, I think more by chance. Yeah. Yeah, more by chance because in those days, as I said, <laughs> like um, it was couscous, couscous and couscous. And I remember one night we went to a restaurant and we ordered lamb tagine and we lifted it up and we were all a little bit not ourselves. And Oh, it's, the, ta- it's taken me just till then. Burnt. Just stop you a second. It's taken me just till then because you said you were not all yourself. I've just realised you were pissed. That's what you're saying. You were no, drunk. you couldn't get booze. <laughs> so what do you mean you're not yourselves? What, were you well, smoking something? or you? Think about oh, it in Morocco. Goodness, I can't believe it. You should just tell us. We're all like sitting on the edge of our seats trying to find out <laughs> what it meant that you weren't yourselves. Oh, just think about it in Morocco. Hello. <laughs> Right, sorry, you know carry I mean? on, carry on. Yeah, okay, so we lifted the, the damn lid off this tagine and we were all <laughs> stoned, you know. Right, and, there, and we got it out in the open. There you well go, done, there Lotta. you go. And the meat <laughs> was actually moving and me personally, I thought, shit, that stuff was heavy, you know, like I, I'm seeing the food move, you know, but actually when we poked into it, it was full of maggots. So I've never eaten lamb since. Tajin doesn't go on the menu. No, Tajin doesn't go on the menu. It's only recently I I cooked a bit of lamb the other day and I, I, oh, no, just the thought of that makes me. Can I drag you back into the restaurant game then? There's some lovely Mm -hmm. stories there. Thank you so much. What do you reckon you're most proud of in your time being a restaurant? Oh, okay. And I'm not a show pony and I'm a very private person. And But this, I've got to say, okay, so... Richard Branson, I don't know if he still owns it, but he used to own a little island up here called um, Make Peace Island or yeah. something off to Wanton. And um, anyway, so he used to come come into the restaurant a lot, you know, with his staff. And um, anyway, so he was interviewed once and uh, the interviewer said, well, what's your top five things in the world that you like to do? And uh, flying to the moon was one and, I don't know, his wife was another or something. And we were actually in there, Bistro C. I mean, that was the proudest moment. Oh, that, that really was because this guy travels. I mean, he, he, Sir Richard Branson, you know what I mean? And, if it's and next Prince, to flying to the moon, it should be on your business card. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I, I lived on that for a while, you know, like, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Beats any award, doesn't it? It does, yeah. To get that kind of feedback, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so, and I hate to drag you into the negative, what do you think has been the saddest or the hardest time in your career? Oh, I've got to say when COVID hit, my staff were all crying and, you know, like that was pretty intense. Apart from that, you know, we've all been fun. But that, that was when we got noticed to close, I mean, as you can imagine, like it's like a bit of a family business. Oh, people were hysterical, crying and, you know, wondering what their future was and mm. that was the saddest, I reckon. How did, how did you feel about that moment? Well, I think we're all in shock. Like I'm going like, what the hell's happening, you know, like but I'm one of those people that adapt. I, I adapt really quickly. You know, so we were closed and I took time to look into the business and cut back things that, you know, 
was beneficial in a way, you know, yeah. because I could um, look at the business and it's been great. Mind you, it was just before Easter and we bought all the bloody food in for Easter and we had to store that out of cold rooms and freezers in the warehouse. So that was good. Thank God I had that. I don't know what people did if they didn't have that, you know, facility. But um, as the time went on, I had a coffee cart made and we started selling coffee in that little area, you know, what we call the 60s. And I went back on the grill, you know, flipping bloody egg and bacon burgers (laughs) in my bandana. (laughs) And my daughter was making cakes and we just, I mean, it was the funniest thing. I remember the first day or something, we took $200 or something and we were all going high five, you know, yeah, (laughs) man, yeah. You know, like $200 bloody dollars. I'm going like, oh, my God, what has the world come to? But we were that happy and proud, you know, like, and then then we could serve 10 people. So we had 10 people every two hours and that worked and then we could have 20 people. Then it just got to 40 people or, you know, so yeah. we just progressed yeah. back to back into. To and have, yeah. you kept, have you kept anything out of that? Because obviously you had time to think and think about the business. Has, has there been some good where you've gone, I've changed oh, that or I've changed how we've done Absolutely. We've saved ourselves a fortune. Can you absolutely. give us some examples? Just like linen, linens and, you know, like, um, you know, mats for the kitchen. You know, we looked into everything. We looked yeah. into how we could save money. Yeah, and pulled it and, apart and started and again. And pulled it apart and started again. Yeah. You know, because I was I was going to ask, are you going to slow down or are you going to continue to drive hard? Well, I dream of slowing down, but then I slow down. If I have a couple of days off, I get bored. You know, I'm one of those kind of people. So slow down's not on the cards? Doesn't seem to be. I mean, I... I I want to, but I don't want to. <laughs> As you smile, which I, I love that. So what, what, let's, let's um, ask, what do you think it's going to look like in a year's time for you? Where's Bistro C? What are you doing? Okay, well... As I am getting older, I have been giving the girls more uh, responsibility. I've got three girls. They each have their own little niche in the business and their kids are still quite young. So um, they work as many hours as what they can in the business, but I'm definitely letting them have more responsibility, which is great. Me personally, I'll probably still be doing this until they bloody cart me out, you know, and um, I don't think I'll ever slow down. Yeah. I, I don't think so. It's not in my nature. It's in your blood. In my blood. Yeah. And what I hear, you you know, from industry sources, you are the only person that can fit that dining room together like a jigsaw and cram, <laughs> cram so many covers. So that French floor manager you had back in Eduardo's days must have taught Eduardo's. you. Eduardo's. must have taught you something because I've heard on the grapevine that no one in the business can yeah. cram as many people per sitting and I move know. tables and chairs as that triathlete will attest to like you can. I know. That's why I've got a bad back because I'm always <laughs> humping chairs and tables. Yeah, and I hear the you lighting know, is perfect as well. That's yeah, what I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, before this, I went down there just to check. You know. <laughs> I love it. You know, yeah. if you want to, you can actually buy a system and it's really expensive that will just adjust it to... Get away. 
yeah, to the desired level. But it's bloody expensive and you won't approve it, I know, because you oh, you probably yeah, got no. a little bit. I'm a cheapskate and I always looked yeah, at the system. Yeah, a little bit of a cheapskate. I'll go, no, I'll just twiddle with the knobs. It's fine. You can save that 20, 30 grand and yeah. use it for something else. Yeah, <laughs> Well, exactly. thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on and it was just a chat. So hopefully you enjoyed it too. And we got some fabulous stories and I think it's time to go back to Morocco when things yeah. loosen up a little bit and you can... Well, if I do, if I do, I'll let you know and I'll let you know if there's any stories. Yeah, and take a suitcase full of Levi's. (laughs) (laughs) So now for my tips and tricks. And I was thinking about what Lorraine said and my first visits to Eduardo's back in the day that was a game changer. All these beautiful Thai and Indonesian flavours. It was just, it seemed so perfect for Noosa at the time. And she's kept that going right up to the present day. And I was looking at the menu and on it was a short rib cooked as a rendang, which is a beautiful curry with pickled cucumber, and I thought, delicious. But do you make it yourself? I reckon you should have a go at making the curry paste. And I'm not going to give you a recipe, but essentially it's a beautiful, fresh amalgamation of chilies and onions and garlic and ginger shrimp paste. But the thing that really makes the difference, even if you buy a rendang paste, you've got to finish it with a coconut paste. And this is called canker, and it's as simple as this. You should take fresh coconut and grate it and toast it and cook it until it's beautifully caramelised and almost sweet. But you can actually do the same thing with desiccated coconut. It's about toasting it slowly until it's quite a dark brown, cooling it down and then either blending it or, in preference, mortar and pestle, and you pound it just for a minute or two until it releases all those beautiful coconut oils and almost goes pasty. But experts tell me, friends tell me, that it shouldn't be a paste but a little sandy, a little coarse, You put that in that randang and it will bring it to life. Thickens the curry slightly. It gives it this wonderful, toasty coconut flavour. Randang will never be quite the same. Trust me. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.